Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, page 723 in our church Bibles. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 26 to verse 38. So while you're turning there, just a few things. As always, if you have any question about what was said or sung or read this morning or about Jesus Christ, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. Um, This morning, we're going to move from the the theological to the devotional. So we're going to work through the incarnation to the annunciation, which is the title of our talk, and I think it'll make sense as we begin, but just keep that in mind. We're going to go from theological or intellectual to um, devotional. So that's the pattern that will follow. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 26. Chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin... The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's let's pray as we always do. Father, I am your servant. And we all need your grace to come to us now as your truth is preached. Remind us, God, that you would have never had these things written if you did not want these things known and explained. So please, Father, glorify yourself and your son and your Christmas plan for Jesus' sake. And may there be a touch of the supernatural on our time together today, second service, and through the evening hour. Christ's name, amen. It's impossible to understand Christianity without being confronted by the miraculous. And any attempt to remove the miraculous from the story of Christianity is an attempt to try and remove the very heart of Christianity. Because we believe as Christians in an open universe. We believe in the miraculous. One of the reasons perhaps why so many men and women and young people either take so lightly or no longer regard warnings of a coming judgment as very real now may be because that realm no longer has never seemed very real to them ever. 
It's uh, like Asgard for you Marvel comic fans. It is like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And no, I haven't seen the movie yet, but yes, I plan on seeing it. But anyway, it's a fairy tale to some. And of course, in the modern and postmodern age, many churches have attempted to remove the miraculous from the Christmas story or have added additions to the story that make perhaps the miraculous nature of the story seem more and more from the realm of myth or uh, legend or fairy tales, but nothing to stake your life on. Both are unhelpful because both are wrong. Both have abandoned the sufficiency of the biblical narrative and decided it's either too hard to explain or it's just too far-fetched to believe. Or, having decided that we need to kind of spice the story up a bit to increase sales, they take out the true and old and put in the new and false. However, When you take the difficult parts of the Christmas story, you have taken away the vital parts of the Christmas story. And when you take the vital parts of the Christmas story, you ruin souls. You ruin souls. And when you add to the story, you have contaminated the story, and then you have confused souls. And so this morning, the conviction that we have as God's people is a conviction that lies at the very heart of the Christmas story, and it begins at the Incarnation. That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, that true statement is also a familiar statement to many of us. But my hope is that we don't let the familiarity of the story of the incarnation make us stop thinking about the wonder of the incarnations. Well, theologians, new and old, whom God has gifted, often try to help us understand the incarnation, and one of the most helpful documents. To that end, I think, is the Westminster Confession. It was created in the middle of the 17th century. And what it does, it states the biblical truth of the incarnation as follows. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being truly and eternally God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon himself man's nature, with all its essential properties and common frailties, yet without sin. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and of her substance. In this way, two whole natures, the divine and the human, perfect and distinct, were inseparably joined together in one person without being changed, without being mixed, without being confused. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And that is much of the doctrine of the Incarnation, that Jesus was born of a human mother without the intervention of a human father. I'm going to say that again, that Jesus was born of a human mother without the intervention, without the aid of a human father. And as we've been saying, this lies at the very heart of Christianity. Uh, It's an essential doctrine. It lies at the heart of Christmas. So as you think about this, this is in the realm of divinity. The awareness of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity, without ever ceasing to be what he is, namely God. And he took into union with himself in a moment in time, human nature. And in that, he revealed himself to be truly God and to be truly man. Therefore, listen carefully, 
Jesus is not a superman. Jesus is man, and Jesus is God. That's divinity. Likewise, there's mystery. And of course, it is a mystery. I mean, you can come with a whole lot of questions about how this unique birth took place. Because think about it. Most of us here know how a regular birth happens. And that in itself is a wonder. I mean, we would blush a bit, at least I would, when the question came from the kids when they were little, where do babies come from? But to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, to conceive a child who is God, we we can only grasp the edges of that. This is divinity, this is mystery, and this is history. Because you'll notice in your Bible, in the opening uh, verses of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, Luke does good research. He was reporting facts. He wasn't reporting fables. He was a passing acrobos anothen. What does that mean? Well, it, it means he, he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Right? I just want you to knew, know that I did my studies this week. Right? That's what Luke was doing. An investigation about a man and a message that was already in circulation when Luke began to write his gospel. A message that was being preached from place to place and house to house. A message about a man who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who claimed he was God, yet bleeds, bleeds on a cross and dies. It's a message about a man who's God, who's changing people's lives, offering them forgiveness of sin, a right standing with God, a way past death, and he was saying he's the only one who could do that. And it's the fact that this research was careful and there were names and places and people to verify which served to underpin uh, the veracity, the reliability, and the genuineness of this history. So this is fact and it's not fable. And And I like this for a number of reasons. I like that God invades the mind. One, because I'm not very smart and it tells me that I need to do my studies But it also tells me that God is very interested in our minds. I mean, I was just thinking when I was saying this, that one of my big leaps into loving God more came through understanding not only the incarnation, but understanding the history and the the veracity and the truth of how the scriptures came to be. I mean, we tend to go these days, make them go, ah. And if they'll go, ah, then they'll be interested. God does the reverse. Make them go, hmm. And then I'll worship. God excites the mind. And once the mind is excited, our affections and our emotions, they'll usually follow suit. And again, theologians throughout history talk about the incarnation in at least three ways to try to help us understand it. So they say, no conversion was taking place in the incarnation. In other words, deity was not lost in humanity. Humanity was not absorbed by divinity. That one was not being converted by the other or taken over by the other. They exist. Humanity and divinity existed side by side. One substance, two natures in the person of Christ. And then they also say no composition took place in the incarnation. And what they meant by that was that the incarnation did not produce a new creature a creature who was neither God nor man. 
So, so Jesus was not some kind of, if you would, mixed cocktail. No. And finally, they said, there is no confusion in the incarnation. That there was no confusion in the person of Christ between his human nature and his divine nature. They were in harmony with each other. And as you think about this, the truth of the incarnation confronts us with the fact that the only way to ever come to our Bibles, at least of all these scriptures before us this morning, is frankly on our knees. On our knees. At least symbolically, if not literally. In my summer readings on John Stott, I was reminded that he would read his final manuscript of the Sunday sermons on his knees. On his knees. As a reminder to himself that this is wonder upon wonder, a mystery upon mystery, that there's no way in the world that the preacher will be able to, to speak in a way that people will understand if God isn't completely relied on. And actually, I hope that you come to church Sunday morning by Sunday morning with the same idea, that there's no way that you'll be interested or that you'll want to listen and understand unless you've spent some time on your knees. Before you come, I read a tweet this week that said, our sermons begin and end on our knees. It's not the turn of a phrase, but the power of God that changes lives. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus was very clear. This is what he said. I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. What does Jesus mean here? Is he saying that we're going to have to go to little kid class to learn the Bible? Well, maybe in some cases. However, what Jesus is saying is this. Okay, smart guy, you're really smart and you think that you don't have to listen and learn. You're top of the class. Unless you become like a little child, you'll no way enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not understand the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's not that we become childish but we become childlike. We won't understand divine truth if we do not first bow to it. We will not understand divine truth unless we come in need, which is why ultimately everyone in this room and everyone in the world needs to be saved by grace because grace opens the mind. I mean, the Bible says things about our mind before God like this. It's a base, it's fallen, it's dead, it's confused. And after grace... We're able to understand. Catherine Hankey was a very wealthy woman. She worked among the poor just about her whole adult life. She wrote Christian poems and hymns. One of my favorite begins with the verse, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and I am weary and I am helpless and defiled. And you see, loved ones, that's how we learn from God. This is how we learn from God, and this is how we come to God, right? But the modern man and the modern woman come to God with all guns a-blazing, right? With arms swaying around like an orangutan. You prove it to me. Prove it to me. Prove it, and then I'll believe it. And often, they only receive silence because the essential condition to receiving God's truth, his light from the scriptures, is not sophistication. It's simplicity. 
It's humility and it is need. Simplicity and humility and need. There's a reason why Zechariah had to be shut up for a while. And there's a reason why Mary embraced all the mystery of the incarnation. Listen to your Bible. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. This is the incarnation. It is a wonder. It is a mystery. 1 Timothy 3.15. This is what God says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Incarnation. Mystery. Divinity. History. Okay, that's the theological part. Now to the Annunciation. And the Annunciation is simply the announcement of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary of what was coming. And so what we'll do now as we kind of turn the corner here in our talk is we'll come with, with wonder and we'll come with simplicity and humility and we'll come, at least I will, in need. So if your Bible's open, you'll notice the opening phrase, verse 26, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. So I put down the phrase, number one, Mary receives grace. Now that's going to be really important. So if, if I was taking notes, I'd probably write that down. Mary receives grace. So you have a routine day in the life of this very young woman. It's probably possible that she was just doing her routine chores, and then all of a sudden, angel Gabriel comes to her. She is, verse 27, she's betrothed to Joseph. And this meant that they were not married yet, that they had not shared the marriage bed but they were united before the culture in such a way that only a divorce could separate them, which was the nature of engagement of being pledged to one another in that day. So this is a uh, sacrosanct union, but it is an incomplete union. They haven't known each other physically. In other words, they were together, but not together together. The full benefits of marriage were, were still waiting for them. And you'll see this if your Bible's open, that in the routine day, divinity breaks in into history. In fact, I wrote in my notes, divinity breaks into history out of necessity. And don't skip over that. This whole event happens in a place in time. This whole event is happening in time because of our sin. Sin is being defeated here. So the angel Gabriel arrives, sent by God to the Virgin Mary, and she says, verse 28, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. This is an acceptable translation. Mary, grace, the Lord is with you. Now think about that. That's what he's saying. Mary, grace, to you, the Lord is with you. Now you'll notice that Mary was greatly troubled, verse 28, but only by what she heard. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and you'll find this in verse 12 of the same chapter, he was startled and afraid by what he saw, the angel. In fact, the angel had to calm him down a bit. So to me, it's kind of funny. You have Zechariah, a priest before God, who deals with the spiritual all the time, but when the angel pops in, he is terrified. And then there's Mary, a very young, common, poor lady, And an angel comes in, and she's troubled by not what she saw, the angel, but she's troubled by what she heard from the angel. Now, I can promise you that if I was her, I would have passed out, right? Usually in the New Testament, an angel pops in, and the first thing the angel has to say is, do not be afraid. If it was me, the angel would say to me, get up, (laughs) 
Come on. You know, verse 28, the Lord is with you, Mary. Okay, why is Mary troubled? And why is Mary wondering? I mean, isn't that a good question? You see, the familiarity of the story, we blow right past that. Well, because what Mary hears is actually an, not an unfamiliar greeting when you read the whole of Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Gideon. Gideon was the least and the last and the lowest of his family. Remember the overwhelming odds that they were up against and the whole people group, they were hiding in cliffs and they were hiding in caves from their enemies. And remember the story of how God begins to reduce the army and so on. And so you have a desperate people in a desperate situation and the journey begins with the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon of all people and saying, the Lord is with you, just like Mary, the Lord is with you, a mighty warrior. Right? Sure, all mighty warriors hide in caves and cliffs. Right? He is not even near mightiness. But this is what we need to know. This is the revelation of God into the weakness and into the frailty of man confronted by these horrible odds. He was not on his own a mighty anything. But he is now because the Lord is with him. And so the the start of our forgiveness of sins, at least in the human realm comes when this weak young lady is approached by an angel given grace and said the Lord is with you. And perhaps Mary knew her her Old Testament well enough to know the story of Gideon and to realize the significance of what was being said in that little phrase, you are highly favored and the Lord is really with you. Now, at that point, she doesn't know anything about a baby and his birth. She just knows that grace has come, she's favored, and God is with her. So look at your Bible, verse 29, please. Mary was greatly troubled, and she wondered. She tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I put in my notes, don't you like Mary for this? I mean, this is, this is who she is. She does this with regularity. She's always pondering and she's always wondering. Uh, Later on, after the shepherds leave her, hearing what the angel said about the baby. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Mary treasured, treasured up all the things and pondered them in her heart. You guys, that was Mary's bent. She was a contemplative, meditative, happy thinker. She does the same thing at the age of 12. Uh, Jesus left left himself at the temple. They had to go back and get Jesus. And everyone is astonished by Jesus. And once again, Mary is treasuring up these things, holding them in and thinking them through. So this is Mary as Mary. She's being who she is. Verse 30, Gabriel says to her, don't be afraid. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Now, Now, put yourself... In Mary's shoes for just a moment. And just imagine each of these phrases coming to you one behind the other. Okay? Look at your Bible. Uh, Verse 30. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You will be with child. Verse 31. You will bear a son. And you'll give him the name Jesus. And he will be great. Verse 32. He'll be called the son of the most high. He'll sit on the throne of his father David. And his kingdom will never come to an end. Now, you guys, that is quite a day, isn't it? I mean, take all that in. That is quite a day. But Mary is quite a woman. Her response is beautiful. She knows her frailty. She knows who she is. This is the the response of humanity confronted by the divinity. 
It's the response of time when invaded by eternity. It's the response of a lady, verse 28, who was highly favored. The Greek word there is the word we get grace from. She's endowed with grace. This is what it means, you guys, to be given grace. This is a woman who's been given the grace of God. What does the grace of God do? Well, it converts, it convinces, and it humbles, and it gives faith. Those of you that did the uh, home group session last year when we worked through Genesis, remember the story of Noah, uh, Genesis 6-8? If you skipped over the fact that Noah received grace from God, then you made a mess of the whole story. Noah received grace, and once Noah received grace, then all those good things happen. What do people who have been given the grace of God do? Well, in part, they ask the right question, because this might be too simple, but Mary, after hearing all this terrific stuff about her child, about a king, and he's going to be great, and he's going to be the son of the Most High, I mean, Mary is not ready to put a bumper sticker on the back of her minivan telling the world how great her kid is going to be. She doesn't do that. She just asks an amazingly basic question. How will this be since I am a virgin? How can I have a baby if I'm not officially married? That's a good question. In light of all that was said to her, that is a humble question. And so the angel replies. And again, the, the, the reply of the angel is in language I think that is so restrained. It is, it's beautifully restrained. This is not the kind of earthly street language that is so common today. This is not how the modern 21st century person describes these things. Mary has never known a man. Well, think with me. She's never known a man. She probably knows what should happen, but she has never experienced what actually does happen. And the angel, Gabriel, is in charge by God to tell her what will happen. So this is a natural question. How will this be since I am a virgin? And here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Now that would mean something to Mary. She would probably have known that the revelation of God oftentimes in in ages past would be God disclosing himself in a cloud where God reveals himself and at the same time he conceals himself in the cloud. So remember the Exodus, the pillar of cloud by day. Job twenty-two fourteen. clouds are the hiding place for God. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Think of your New Testament of the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9. God speaks from the cloud. The cloud both conceals God and the cloud also reveals God. When Jesus is taken away into heaven, what happens? The cloud received him. So the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's going to cast a shade over you, Mary. It will overshadow you. And and something's going to happen. A natural result will happen when God overshadows you. And you guys, that's the mystery of godliness. Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared not like, ta-da, here I am. But he appeared as a fertilized egg. And then after a few things, a a fetus. And that's a mystery. God's a fetus. Now, when a husband and wife produce a child, the child usually grows up and asks questions. 
some good, some bad. One of the questions they will ask is, where was I before I was born? What do you say to them? You say, well, go ask your mother. No, you would tell them you did not exist before you were born. You were nowhere. And that is mysterious. You weren't floating around in some kind of personhood. But that is not what happened with Jesus. Jesus always existed. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself and became a man. Jesus was not created. Jesus predates his birth. He's the only one that can say that. Listen to Luther. We must both read and meditate on Christ's birth. If the meditation does not reach the heart, we shall sense no sweetness, nor shall we know what comfort and relief there is for humankind in this contemplation. The heart will not laugh and be merry. There is such goodness and richness in this nativity that if we should see and deeply understand, we should be dissolved in perpetual joy. Now, do you understand what he's saying? This is what he's saying. And, and again, the modern mind has such trouble understanding and actually believing this. This is what he's saying. If we really thought through this enunciation and we really thought through the incarnation, if we thought humbly and deeply about this, joy would overtake us. Joy would overtake us. So, so the big question, do you stand in need of joy this morning? Well, what are the usual routes that we go? Right? What are the usual routes that we go? I can promise you that it won't be. I'm going to sit down with my Bible open and I'm going to think, 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 think about the incarnation and the Annunciation. I might even get a big fat book that will help me with it. Because what Luther's saying is put all your puny problems in relation to God. Put all your puny problems under the jurisdiction of God and think these things through. Think them through. Why? Well, this is what the Bible says. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. But the one who's convinced that they know better, they'll know nothing. And therefore, they will enjoy nothing. Verse 37, because nothing is impossible with God. Mary receives grace. That's number one. Number two, Mary becomes a servant of the word. So, so the story, the angel has given Mary information. She has pondered these things. Gabriel then gives an explanation and a response is submission. It's beautiful. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary says. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That is grace. I mean, who would say, oh yeah, that's what I would have done. Would it, would it really be that easy? Grace came down on Mary, a very pregnant young lady, unmarried in the community. How does that usually go? Would you find that easy to do? What will they say about me in the community? They'll say I cheated on Joseph. They'll say that this birth is illegitimate. And that's what people said. Actually, that's one of the arguments for the incarnation. Many of the Jews would poke fun at Jesus and say, we know who his mother is, but we don't know who his father is. He's an Ill illegitimate child. We don't know where he came from. But of course, they never knew the Jews, his true father. Now beyond that, Mary's going to have to tell Joseph. Right? Before, I'm the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word be to me fulfilled. I'm going to walk out of church. Here we go. But I still got to tell Joseph. 
What am I going to say to him? Matthew chapter 1 with just a bit of conjecture. Hey, honey, how was your day? It was good. Good, but we need to talk. Okay, let's talk, my lovely bride. Joseph, I'm going to have a baby. What? I'm going to have a baby. A baby? I'm going to need to sit down. Because I know it's not my baby. Mary, what did you do? Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Joseph was a just man, an unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. There's no need to embarrass her. I'll, I'll just say it's over. Something happened and then it's over and we're done. And then Joseph goes to his bed and he tries to go to sleep. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived as her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. When Jesus woke up and did what the angel had told him, he married Mary, but had no intercourse with her until she had given birth to a son. Then he did what the angel told him and gave him the name Jesus, which means God is salvation. Now please listen as we kind of draw to a close. Mary receives grace. There's no way that Mary could have responded this way if God did not favor her. Mary then becomes a servant of the word. There's no way that she would have said yes to these things and believed on these things in a way that was quite different from Zechariah if she did not bow to the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God. So she gets a life-changing message. This is a mind-stretching mystery. She's got to do the common things and go home and tell Joseph. But then this offers her and us a soul-stirring question, right? What are we to do with the incarnation and the Annunciation? What are we to do with all this? It's part of the story. God wants us to know. What do we do? Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury, this would have been in the late 90s, and the actress Jane Fonda once had a, a conversation at a mealtime. The archbishop said, Jesus is the son of God, you know. Jane Fonda says, maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. The archbishop of Canterbury replies, Jane, either he is or he isn't. And that's it. Either Jesus is the son of God or he's not. Either, either he's a savior of the world or not. Either he's your king or not. Jesus is not kind of anything. He's not kind of God. He's not kind of a savior. He's not kind of a man. He's not kind of a king. He's God. He's savior. He's incarnate. And he's the king of kings. And Mary and Joseph got it right. They responded by faith. And that is a response that God calls for all of us. Mary essentially said, let it be, right? A little bit of the Beatles. Let it be. Let it be. As your word says, I am your servant. Just let it be. And Joseph, similar. There's a song that says, and I think this is Mary, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. 
Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. And take my hands. Take my feet. Take my lips. Take it all. That's Mary. Take it all. And then there's Joseph. I'm, I'm going to do exactly what the Word of God says. I'm going to take her home. She's going to be my wife. And I'll do what the angel said. I'm going to name him Yeshua, Jesus. And the rest, they say, is history. You know how modern man loves to go back in time and find out who our relatives are? We get online. I think it's Ancestry.com. We want to find out who, who, where we came from. Go all the way back. Go back to Luke 1 and Matthew 1. The kingship of Jesus Christ is real. The return of Jesus Christ is a real day coming. The judgment of Jesus Christ over our lives is real. Christmas, in some sense, is forever. Forever. Because Jesus Christ reigns on the throne forever, and his kingdom will never know an end. And at the name of Jesus, we will bow, Mary will bow, and Joseph will bow, and you will bow, and I will bow, and the people that you're going to invite to the Christmas Eve service, they will bow. And the only question then is whether the Lord who is enthroned in the heavens and the Lord who will reign forever and ever is the one before whom everyone will come and bow as a Christian. Has Jesus Christ come to reign in your life? Has the King, the incarnate Christ, who would later on die on the cross to save us from our sins, has he come to reign in your heart and in your life? Does, does Jesus take rulership over your career, your marriage, your family, your singleness? Not, not in some kind of superficial, sentimental, Christmassy, gooey kind of way. But have you come to Jesus and said, you know what, Jesus, I am so tired of living with the fallout of my messed up decisions. I've been up so many dead-end streets. I haven't slept well in years. I'm so filled with anxiety, Jesus, I could just burst. So you say to him, Lord Jesus Christ, you came as a Savior, and I need a Savior. And I want you today to become the Savior that I freely confess I need. I know you're king. And I know you're savior. And then it begins. You won't be perfect. But you will be accepted. And like Mary. And like Joseph. It is in the bowing low. That entry into heaven is found. The Puritans would say, the entry into heaven is low, is low. And if you don't bow, you can't get in. Remember Mary's song, he fills the needy, fills the poor with good things, but he sends the full. He sends the rich, those who are full of themselves, full of themselves he sends them away empty. Romans 10, 11, anyone who believes in Christ will never be put to shame. But you have to bow in simplicity, humility, need, and faith. That's it. Let's bow together now.
Our gracious God, how desperate we are for you to come in to our lives and show us again the great majesty and the wonder of the incarnation that over this Christmas season we'll be stuck on the incarnation, that we'll think, think, meditate, meditate, let the wonder of what Jesus has accomplished and what Jesus was submitting to you to do. And let us be lost, as the song says, in wonder and praise. That God would become man. And he would dwell among us. And he would bleed and die for us. So that our rebellion, our wickedness, our lawlessness could be forgiven. Jesus, you are great. You are the Son of God. And we bow before you this morning. Amen.